right, good morning. Uh, if I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as family pastor. Justin is uh, out of town. He's visiting the in-laws in California. So uh, let me uh, fix my slideshow here. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm excited to walk through uh, Daniel chapter 5 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there uh, with me. That's what we'll be reading um, this, this morning, Daniel chapter 5. This is week 5 of, a, of our summer series through the book of Daniel. And um, before we, we jump in, I'm going to pray for us. So would you uh, pray with me? Father, we, we praise you because in your grace you, have, you are God with us, that you have uh, seen our deepest need, you have taken on the form of a, hu- of a human, you have uh, in humility gone to the cross for our sake to bear sin and to bear shame. So we praise you for, because you are God with us. And we also, as a, as a, as a family of believers, we lift up the... the the, the church in the, the Nuba Mountain region that we, just, uh, that we just heard of, Lord, would you prove yourself to be God with them? And would you use uh, the, the hospital there, the, uh, the audio Bibles, and the, and the ministry of the Persecution Project to bring uh, real physical relief, but then also would you use it to, to bring the hope, the life, the peace uh, that comes from the gospel of a crucified Savior who knows our every weakness and who knows our frailty and our suffering and has identified uh, with us to bring us a newness of life. So would you be glorified uh, there and, um, and, and the next week as we run uh, to, raise, to raise money for that ministry. Uh, we ask that you would be with us now as we study your word, whether we're here, we're, we're 8 years old or 80 years old, would your spirit or work mightily in us to change us to, to, that we might enjoy your gospel more as a result of this time in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so I want you to imagine this scene with me. It's October, the month of October, end of October. The year is 539 B.C. And Persia, the Persian Empire, is the dominant global superpower under the, the rule of Darius. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, of Cyrus the Great. Uh, and he, uh, the, the only, uh, the, who's this guy right here, the only part uh, of the Middle East that's not under Persian control is the once great Babylonian Empire. So you can see kind of the, the, the layout uh, of, the, of the region here. Uh, Persia has just over the last decade or so really uh, taken control over most of the area. Babylon is declining. Uh, it's, over the last couple of decades, Babylon has fallen from its height. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the guy that we, Justin actually walked us through his, some of his reign last week, under, um, under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon had flourished. But the new emperor, a guy named Nabonidus, he has basically checked out. Nabonidus is uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He's basically checked out. He's gone AWOL left, and left the running of the empire to uh, his son, the crown prince Belshazzar. Uh, and, um, and so Babylon's... Uh, Waning, they've got a, a king that's not really present, and then a, a son, a young emperor who's, uh, as we'll see, is not very competent either. And it gets even worse for Babylon. So a few weeks earlier, so remember this is late October, a few weeks earlier, in late September, Belshazzar had just been soundly defeated by the Persians, by Cyrus the Great at the Battle of Opus. You can see Opus there, right there on the middle of the, of the map. It's 80 kilometers north of Babylon. 
Uh, he, it was a complete victory, complete rout for the Babylonians, complete victory for the Persians. And then a week later, the Persian emperor uh, wa- took uh, the major Babylonian city of Sippar, which is just 30 miles north, or 30 kilometers north of Babylon, uh, without even a fight. He just walked in, took the city, they let him, they let him have it. And then now... Uh, the Persian army is less than a day's journey from the walls of Babylon itself. So they're right outside the walls and the gates of Babylon. This is the historical stage that we find ourselves in as we come to the story of Daniel chapter 5. So last week we looked at the humiliation, the the exaltation, the humiliation, and the restoration of of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's greatest emperor. Uh, And uh, he, remember, he in his pride, exalted himself above even God himself, and so God kind of gave him over to the desires of his, of his heart, and he, which turned him into a kind of a beast. Uh, and then he was restored when he recognized uh, his, his, uh, his place uh, in God's eyes. So that was, that was last week. Now we're 23 years later after that point, after he's been dead, I should say. Uh, but as we'll see... Nebuchadnezzar's reign and his rule continues to loom large in Babylon even as it finds itself on the brink of collapse. So Babylon is crumbling. Here's a famous Rembrandt painting of that, the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, 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 you can see it's a, almost like a cosmic chaos is, is happening right now. And the question is, as Babylon is crumbling, how will the, the new king, this young king Belshazzar, respond? And this is an important question because how we respond when things around us start to crumble and collapse is a crucial question. And it has a lot to tell us about our truest self, our substance, what we're made of. There are a lot of ways that we can respond when the foundations of our world start to crumble and fall apart. So just a light uh, example of this. When I was in college, I was uh, uh, part of an uh, intramural flag football team. And uh, so... Um, one particular t- year, season, we were a horrible team. Uh, I was the starting safety, so that shows you that we were probably not going to do well. Um, and um, uh, we were not good, and our record showed it. We lost way more games than we won. Um, and as the season progressed, we went through the season, it became clear like we were crumbling, and we were on the verge of collapse as a team. But as our uh, season continued down this kind of toilet bowl downward cycle, it was interesting to see the ways that my different teammates responded to our collapse and to the crumbling of our season. Some of us uh, got really, really angry. This is super common in sports, if you've ever been around sports. You get really angry, you get chippy with your teammates, yelling at the refs, yelling at the coaches, yelling at the team captain, um, all over uh, intramural flag football. Remind, uh, and uh, then others of us started, went maybe another extreme. We took it really, really seriously, uh, started working really hard, took flag football way more seriously than it ought to have, uh, started working really hard and showing up to all the practices and working really hard and really being intense in the game. And then the final group of, of our teammates uh, basically just said, uh, well, if we're going to lose anyways, we might as well have fun with it. So they just started joking around and goofing off during practice, goofing off during games, not really taking anything seriously because they figured, hey, we're going to lose anyway, so we might as well just check out. 
Uh, so that was, so uh, each of those responses, each of those types of responses to, to a world, to a team that's crumbling and falling apart, it reveals something, it reveals something about the, my teammate's character, revealed something about our, our makeup and our truest selves, our, our inner self. The way we respond to collapse and instability shows our substance. And today we're going to look at three responses to the decay, to the crumbling, to the tearing apart of the Babylonian Empire. First, we'll look at Belshazzar's response, the king. Uh, then we're going to look at God's response to, Belshazzar, or to Babylon's collapse. And then finally, we're going to look at Daniel's response uh, to Babylon's collapse. And in Daniel's response, we're going to find an example for what it looks like to be the people of God in exile uh, and how we respond to a crumbling and anxious world around us. And this is an incredibly important conversation for us to have because in our culture and in the world we're living in, we know something about instability. We know something about collapse and decay. Now, now the barbarians probably are not at the gate. I'm not making a doomsday prediction about, you know, America's going to fall in the next decade or Western civilization is going to end as we know. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we know what it feels like when things are crumbling around us. So from COVID uh, arguments to politics to the rising cost of living and inflation to uh, the gender and sexual revolutions that are going on, we know our family members, our coworkers, uh, we ourselves, uh, our neighbors, we know we have felt the anxiety and the fear and, that, and the anger that comes from instability and collapse. And, so, and we felt it in our own lives Personally, maybe you've been in a point where you've felt like your marriage is unraveling or your, the, your, the job that, that you have in the, the company or the department, your coworkers are just, just dysfunctional chaos of a mess and it's coming apart. We know what it's like when things are crumbling. And so Daniel 5, what I want us to see is that Daniel 5, the story that we're about to read, was written to show us how to live as exiles, as the exile people of God and an anxious and crumbling world. Last week, we, t- we talked about what it means to live as a people of God when everything was going great for Babylon, when Babylon was at the height of its power. And today, we're going to see a, 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 the different side of the story. So the question that we want to ask is, how can we live as faithful exiles in an anxious and a crumbling world? And we're going to see those three responses. So let's read, starting in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. So remember... The great Persian army is right on the edge of of the walls of Babylon, and this is what their king does. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from uh, the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay, sounds like quite the party, right? They're living it up. Uh, But remember... Their kingdom's about to be taken from them. Now, we don't really know why Belshazzar is throwing this party. Maybe he had bad intel, been given the benefit of the doubt. Of the doubt. Maybe, uh, maybe he was, you know, this is like Y2K where he's just trying to like, well, if, if the world's going to fall apart, we might as well go out in a, in a, in a bang and, and party it up. We don't really know what he was thinking. But, uh, but uh, he's under the influence of wine, which is just another way of saying he's really drunk. Okay, and then, uh, and then the king's concubines are there, which is, that is just a signal for bad things are happening, okay? Uh, people are being uh, taken advantage of and exploited. Uh, um, 
And, uh, but then he uh, decides to even crank it up a notch. He takes the cup and the bowls that have been stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. Notice how it uh, mentions the temple three times, like back to back to back. It's like, okay, we get it. They're from the temple. We, we know that these are valuable to God. Um, and he takes these, these, these are kind of replicas um, of what those things, they were, they were sacred vessels, sacred items that have been set apart. God had said, only use these for worship during, uh, uh, when you're offering sacrifices, when you're worshiping uh, the Lord. And what does he do? He uses them to, get, to just continue to keep even getting more and more uh, drunk with them. Uh, so in the face of his own demise, this king immaturely, ignorantly tries to assert his dominance over God himself, saying, I'm going to use these things that are supposedly sacred just for my own drunken pleasure. And here's the point that I want us to see, is that in the face of Babylon's demise, Babylon will mock God's authority with foolish arrogance. That's the first point. If you're following along in the bulletin, hand out, that's the first point there. God, Babylon will mock God's authority with foolish arrogance. So Belshazzar is an arrogant fool, brazenly shaking his fist at God in defiance. All the while, the empire that he's leading is falling apart. So I, I have three boys in my house. The, I have a two, almost two-year-old and a three-year-old, so two basically toddlers. Uh, I, I know a little bit about what it means to feel like the world is crumbling and, and, fall, and falling apart. It's, so after 9 p.m. every single night, if my boys uh, you know, happen to be awake, which they should never be awake at 9 p.m., but if they happen to still be awake, my world starts to, the, the world in our house starts to, to crumble. Okay, they get so tired that they cannot hold themselves together. They get irritable, they get uh, sensitive, life gets much harder. But at the same time as they get tired and they start to lose their faculties and their, their ability to control themselves, at the same time as all of that's happening, they become even more defiant to my parental authority. So the, the, so the instruction, hey, we need to start getting ready to brush our teeth or you need to go to bed, that's met with screams and, and defiance uh, where, uh, uh, because they're losing control. Their world is crumbling apart. And that, I think, is a good image for Belshazzar. Here's Belshazzar for us. He's losing uh, control of himself and becoming defiant to authority. Uh, but remember, Babylon and Belshazzar, they are not just historical figures. They are, they are symbols for our day as well. And even in, even in our day, we see the systems, we see cultures, we see power structures foolishly and idolatrously rebelling against God's reign. And this comes, I think, from every direction in our culture uh, and in our society. So we see people on the left in our society responding to the angst of our day by distorting and challenging God's good design for sex and gender. So they're taking what's meant to be our, our, our own bodies and our own sexuality, a symbol and a means by which we're to worship and enjoy God's good design, fundamental for us to live as image bearers. We're taking that and we're distorting it, rebelling against God uh, and his, his authority and his good design for us. So that's to the left. But then on the right, what we see is that people challenge God's authority in almost a more subtler and more deceptive way. So we cling and we clamor to individual rights and our freedom and autonomy, all at the expense of the vulnerable at times. And then there are some uh, who use the church, Christianity, the gospel, God's sacred vessel for worship, as a means for their own political gain. They're perfectly content to manipulate, to, to use religious language, to use religious identification for their own religious gain. That's not much different from what uh, we see Bel Belshazzar arrogantly, idolatrously asserting and doing himself. Uh, and so my point here is, is not to tear anyone down, but to simply to say that we should not be surprised in, uh, when people in, in power challenge God's authority and his good design. 
So we should, we should as, as exiled people, as minority, remnant, exile followers, faithful followers of Jesus, we should expect and, and anticipate, whether it be politicians or business leaders or pastors or celebrities, uh, those that benefit from Babylon's progress, we should expect them to mock the true king. So this means a couple of things. Firstly, it means we don't put our hope in figures like Belshazzar or, or people of our day, but it also means that we don't need to cover up or deny or try to justify any politician or leader or pastor who fails morally. Uh, as, so as we've gone through uh, Daniel, Justin has framed our study really well. We live in a post-Christian world, a world that is trying with all its might to move past the values and the priorities of the gospel. And this is what it means to live as Exiles. We live in a world where the people in power mock what is most precious to us. We need to understand our identity as exiles, and we need to embrace that. And otherwise, if we do not, failure to do this is going to just lead. Our lives are going to be marked by the same frustration and anxiety as the world around us. Okay. So Babylon will mock God's authority with foolish arrogance. We need to know that. But then secondly, what we see is that God exposes the emptiness of Babylon's power. That's God's response to Babylon's demise. Uh, let's keep reading. Remember, uh, let's keep reading our story. This, the scene is they're having a party. Everybody's having a good time. Um, and then verse 5, At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself, and his knees knocked together. Okay, so here we have a cartoon character, basically. That's how afraid he is. Then the king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, that's royalty, will have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. That's important there, third highest, because Nabonidus was the true king and then Belshazzar was the crown prince and then so whoever whoever would be able to interpret this would get the third highest. That means basically second highest because Nabonidus was out of the picture. So third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. All right, so you can imagine this scene. It's a massive party starting to get late. Everyone's having an awesome time. Then all of a sudden... In the light of a lamp against the wall, this hand just appears out of nowhere and starts writing a mysterious message. And the host of the party starts freaking out and causing commotion, probably trying to distract from the fact that he's wet himself. And then he uh, starts shouting and yelling, asking for his counselors to come in and help. He's freaking out. Uh, He's a ball of anxious mess. And... um, What's happening here is God is sending the supposedly greatest man in the kingdom, in the empire, uh, into a tailspin with just the flick and motion of his finger. And not only the king, but also his wise men are put to shame. They can't figure out what's going on. And so we'll skip ahead in the story a little bit, but just to summarize, Belshazzar's grandma comes in and has to remind him about a guy named Daniel who's able to interpret dreams, and somehow Belshazzar had forgotten all about him, but now he's in in desperate need, so he summons Daniel to the court. Daniel shows up. Belshazzar makes the same promise. I'll give you a a gold chain and purple uh, in in the third highest position in the kingdom. Just interpret my dream. And this is what Daniel says. Then Daniel uh, answered the king, You may keep your gifts 
and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was shaken from him. He was driven away from the people until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over the human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. So there, basically he's summarizing what we saw last week in Daniel chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar's fall uh, to humility and then, uh, and then restoration. But you his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the, the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and you, as, and as you and your nobles, wives and concubines, drank from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life uh, in life breath in his hands and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. And then so here he interprets the dream. He gives a kind of a summary of Belshazzar's life and reign. Uh, uh, this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, which is just the Aramaic word for, for number or counting, uh, means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end, obviously, because the, the Persian army is right outside the gates. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and, uh, and found deficient. And then Paris means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And Paris, again, is just the Aramaic word for uh, divided or division, and then, uh, but it also sounds a lot like the word for Persian. So it's kind of a play on words. Okay. So then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. All right, so your days are numbered. You have been weighed on the balance, and your kingdom has been divided. This is God's cool, calm, yet decisive and piercing summary of Belshazzar's true substance. Babylon's empty power has been exposed. And I can't help but imagine how Belshazzar would have felt in this moment. I remember uh, I was 10 years old picking on a girl in the playground. And for the first time, a girl, uh, or, or an adult came over, uh, a teacher I think it was, uh, came over and said, you know the reason that you're teasing her is because you like her, isn't it? And I remember like, just being reeked with embarrassment. And like, I, for the first time, I, my true motives, the true reason behind my actions were just exposed and aired out in public for everyone, uh, for everyone to see. Okay? Uh, but the sobering truth is, Belshazzar and 10-year-old boys aren't the only ones whose emptiness and deficiency will be exposed. And as exiles in Babylon, we need to understand this. One of the fundamental realities of the universe is that God has numbered each of our days. That there has never been a single action that you've committed, a word that you've spoken, a desire that you've felt, a motivation that you've yielded, a thought that you've had, that God has not fully seen and weighed on the balance of His justice. 
In the eyes of God, we stand exposed like cadavers on an autopsy table. And the verdict of your life is this, that you have been weighed, and like Belshazzar, you have been found deficient. You have not loved God best. You have not loved your neighbor as yourself. And that's just two commandments right there. You haven't done that, I promise you. Uh, No matter how moral you may think you are, God knows the true reality of your inward, most inward self. We have loved the wrong things. We have worshipped false gods. You and I are deficient. And truth be told, I, I think that deep down, every single person in this room, every single person in our anxious age and our anxious, crumbling world knows this. Each one of us knows, if we're honest of ourselves, with ourselves, as we're lying awake at night trying to fall asleep in our beds, that deep down, we aren't what we pretend to be. That we are deficient. And so we devise any number of clever ways to try to atone for, cover up our deficiency. Uh, we, uh, we ignore it. And we try to curate an outward image on social media that distracts from our brokenness. Or we try to deflect our deficiency onto others. So millennials are really good at this. We just say, every, any problem that we have is our parents' fault. The way they raised us, they messed us up. So anything that I do now, it's because of my parents, the baggage that I got from my parents. Or we blame our spouse for the problems in our life that are really our own, that our sin has created. Or instead of uh, ignoring or blame-shifting, we just lie. We lie to ourselves and to others about who we really are, and then we use alcohol, we use porn, we use our jobs to numb the pain of lying, which in turn creates a vicious cycle of shame and hiding and deeper deficiency, because you and I both know deep down that we are deficient. And that is why, as much as we dread the idea of our deepest sins being exposed before God, we desperately need them to be exposed. There is no indication that Belshazzar responded well to God's exposing words. In fact, it almost feels like he was too deaf or dull uh, to even hear them. He just continues to offer Daniel the, the, the robe and the chain like it's, as if he can't really hear it. Um, but the beautiful truth of the gospel of grace is that our, as our sins are exposed, as our deepest failures, as our deficiency and our perverted desires are brought into the light of Jesus, we find not shame, but freedom. In the gospel, we have what Belshazzar desperately needed. All of our deficiency are exposed, and yet we are fully accepted. All of our weaknesses and our failures are, are, are brought to light, and yet we are fully affirmed and fully delighted in because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus and His competency and excellency in our place. Because of His death and resurrection in our place, everything that was, that was true of Jesus has now been counted to us at the same time as God fully knows your deepest failings. That's the hope of the Gospel. And that's God's response to the empty power of Babylon and to the emptiness of our own lives. All right, so we've seen Babylon's response, we've seen God's response, and now Daniel's response. God's exile people can have a centered and courageous voice in Babylon. God's exile people can have a centered and courageous voice in Babylon. 
So think about that scene that we read just a few minutes ago. Daniel is, uh, is, is frantically called into the middle of this great party to explain the handwriting on the wall. And on the one hand, you have the young King Belshazzar uh, who's wasted. His face is pale. His pants are wet. He's racked with anxiety and fear. And all his nobles and wise men have been turned into jesters. And the king fumbles awkwardly trying to offer Daniel some prize money that in the end isn't worth a dime. Daniel, in contrast, here is grizzled. At this point, he's well into his 80s. He is, uh, he's wrinkled and gray. He's probably hunched over a little bit. But when he gets before the king, he stands up a little taller and he speaks truth to power firmly, faithfully, and fearlessly. And as Daniel speaks to this anxious, unsettled audience, I think there's, there's four lessons, we're going to work through them quickly, four lessons that we can take away for how to engage our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members in, in our anxious age as well. So firstly, the first takeaway is we should place a lot of value in seasoned and mature voices. So I just want to camp out on Daniel's age for a second. We recognize uh, uh, that he, at this point, he's, He's over 80 years old. He's not a spring chicken. And, and I simply want to say that as a younger man, still hopefully in the first half of my life, uh, the anxious, the unstable, crumbling world of my peers, we need older, godly, mature voices who fearlessly and firmly speak into our lives. We need that. And so if you're here, uh, and, uh, and, and you, you don't, you don't, maybe you don't consider yourself old yet, uh, let me just say, if you're north of 50, which is pretty young, but if you're north of 50, you have, uh, you have 20 plus years of life experience, and, uh, life experience and wisdom that people in their 20s and 30s don't have yet, and we desperately need it. Maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum and you say, well, I'm too old uh, to be of any use to the younger generation. I don't know the technology. I don't know the culture well enough. But there... Let, uh, just, the, just take Daniel and, and Belshazzar, for, for example. There probably weren't two people that were more different from each other than Daniel and Belshazzar. But Daniel was still able to make plays for God deep into his 80s. So we need you. The church needs you, and this world needs you. All right, so that's the first thing. Second thing is we don't need to seek out a platform to tear down outsiders. We don't, Daniel here does not seek out or assert himself into Belshazzar's court. He does, not, uh, uh, he does not assert himself into a platform. So it's not like Daniel was watching Belshazzar make a bunch of mistakes and then take to Facebook and make a, you know, a bunch of posts tearing down his national leader. That's not what Daniel was doing. No, Daniel was invited. He was sought after and, and, um, and pursued. Uh, he, um, he had a track record of wisdom and usefulness to the empire that gave credence and weight to his message so that 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife still remembered, uh, still remembered Daniel and the impact that he had. Now, what this means is not that we, we uh, can't speak the gospel or sp- can't speak a hard truth of Scripture to someone unless they explicitly ask us to. But it does mean that we need to be deliberate about communicating the gospel in a way that can be received. And just as one example, if you find yourself on social media arguing about anything more than like your favorite flavor of ice cream, you're probably doing something wrong. You're probably not communicating in an, an, uh, um, an avenue that can be actually received 
by our, by our culture, okay? So uh, we, don't, we don't assert ourselves into, into platforms like that or in, our, in just regular, ordinary uh, conversations. We, uh, uh, Peter's words uh, in, in 1 Peter, um, he, he writes to the exiles, the strangers and exiles of the first century church. And he says that, uh, he, he tells them to be ready, always be prepared to give an answer about the hope that is within you. So, so his encouragement, Peter's encouragement to the New Testament church is not to assert yourself into a platform where you can really harp, somebody, harp at somebody with the truth of the gospel, but to be ready when asked to speak of the hope of the gospel, okay? Uh, so that's, that's our call as, as minority exiles, remnant people of God, okay? Uh, then, but then, thirdly, uh, in contrast to that, we are to speak truth fearlessly and firmly into the anxieties of our age. So, at, on the one hand, Daniel does not assert himself into anything, but he does not shy away from the opportunity to speak really hard, controversial truth of God's revelation. And he is able to do that because he's centered, because he's courageous, because he's fearless and firm. And now, in our day, you probably won't be invited to a king's court to interpret a vision. But if we're loving people and listening well... In an anxious and a crumbling world, we will likely be asked to speak into other questions that people have. So it might be the coworker who's struggling to find out why he is so lonely or anxious all the time. Or it might be the, the friend who wants to know why all her relationships keep falling apart. I remember uh, a few months ago I was talking to a young guy in our, in our community uh, who uh, is not a follower of Jesus, uh, but he's, uh, rec- he had recently graduated high school. He was trying to strike out on his own. He's uh, 19 or 20. Um, and, he, um, and I only had one conversation with him, but in that one conversation, you could just feel it, it exuded it from him. He was just completely frustrated with all the male figures in his life. So his boss was a jerk. Uh, his stepdad was a real pain to live with. Uh, his real dad was, had basically checked out. He was completely absent. And in that conversation, and you could just see it in his body tone and his language, you could sense the angst and the frustration in his life. And in that conversation, I realized that there was a lot this guy needed. Uh, he needed a new job, probably. He needed uh, some relational skills for dealing, with his, uh, for dealing with his stepdad. He needed a way to get out of that, that house so he could live somewhere else. Uh, but what I tried to help him see in that conversation was that he was going to be forever frustrated with the men in his life, forever looking for affirmation, forever looking for approval that would never come until he found the approval that he was created for from his perfect father through Jesus. So the whole point of that story is simply to say, in the gospel, we, uh, we have real answers to the real anxieties of our anxious and crumbling world. We have real promise, real hope, real solutions to the real tangible uh, issues that, that, that the people in our lives, that the people we are closest to, the people that we rub shoulders with every day face. So we can have confidence in the gospel, in the truth of the gospel, to speak truth fearlessly and firmly into the anxieties of our age. Okay, so that's number three. Last thing to take away. We must be confident in the never-ending reign of God. We must be confident in the never-ending reign of God. Really, this is the whole message of the whole book of Daniel in a nutshell. We can live as faithful exiles by trusting in the Ancient of Days, the eternal king whose reign and dominion will never end. Daniel was able to have a centered and courageous voice in, Daniel, in, in Babylon because his hope was not in Babylon 
but in the never-ending reign of God. So this, the kingdom of God has been established by Jesus and will be brought to its perfect completion when he returns. So that means Judah and Israel may be captured and taken into exile. Uh, it, it means Babylon may rise to dominate. It, mean Bel- it may mean that Belshazzar and the United States may collapse. Persia may conquer, but God is always on the throne. And the cross and the empty tomb are proof of this power. So our hope as exiles in a strange land can never be in the health of America or the health of our marriages or the health of the economy or our retirement fund. Uh, And maybe the question to ask is this. If you find yourself really struggling to live out some of these other uh, application points, if you find yourself struggling to live boldly, fearlessly, and speak truth in the anxieties of our age, if you say, man, I want that to be true of me, but it's not true of me, or if you find yourself insecurely needing to assert yourself into a lot of other people's problems and, and provide solutions that, uh, that, are, that are not being asked for, maybe the question that you need to ask yourself is, is my inability to live out this centered and courageous life the result of the fact that my hope is anchored in a kingdom that is crumbling. Maybe our inability to live as faithful members of God's exile people is because our hope, regardless of what we say or articulate on a Sunday morning, our hope is deep down rooted in something that's fading away and will not last. So let me close with this. Only the gospel gives us the ability to faithlessly and fearlessly be salt in a decaying world and bring light to darkness. So let's go in the grace of God who who has triumphed over Babylon, who has triumphed over our sin, who has triumphed over death itself for our sake. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you because uh, your kingdom never ends. Your reign is all glorious and everlasting. So teach our hearts, our souls, our lives to be aligned with the reality of that glorious gospel. And as we ponder, meditate, and are changed by that gospel, would it impact and enable a new kind of life, a life that's different from the life that we're living right now, a life that's centered in, securely in the eternal reign of God, a life that's centered in, in, uh, in, in the gospel that says our deepest deficiencies have been exposed, yet at the same time we are fully accepted. As we, as we are transformed by that gospel, would you enable us to live in the freedom of a new life that's different than, we are, than we're living today? And so we ask, Lord, with... Uh, with, with our lives, with, and even with the songs that we're about to sing as we close, would you be glorified and pleased. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.